0: take your Bibles this morning and if you would turn with me to first Peter we're gonna be starting a series this morning on first Peter how to live when your faith is under fire uh, such a contemporary book in its application covers just about every area uh, of the Christian life you not can imagine and I'll have more to say about that in a moment would you stand for the reading of the Word of God, please? We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. That's dangerous when I say that. First uh, Peter chapter 1, grace, peace, and hope. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Lord, as we open up this study on the book of 1 Peter, we ask your blessings that you would give us understanding. Lord, this is your word that you inspire. Now, illuminate our minds that we might understand that which you've inspired. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us through these words and equip us for living out our faith in a world that oftentimes our faith is under fire. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. According to writer Perry Caramonte, in the past year the persecution of Christians has not only increased, but it has also spread to more corners of the globe with incidences uh, occurring on every continent, according to a new report. Christians continued to be the most persecuted group across the globe in 2016, according to a study. The study also found that as many as 600 million, I didn't get that number wrong, listen to that again, as many as 600 million Christians were prevented from practicing their faith in 2016. The Christian population in Iraq alone has plummeted from 1.5 million In 2003 to current estimates of 275,000 and could be gone for good within just a few years the advocacy group Open Doors USA recently released the latest edition of its annual world watch list which ranks countries based on the treatment of their Christian populations the group said the increase in incidences in incidents Considered persecution was alarming and only getting worse. They write, it is appalling that Open Doors has to report that persecution has increased again in 2016 and we're still at the worst levels of persecution in modern times, said David Curry. The spread of persecution has gotten worse, now hitting nearly every continent in the world. The report comes on the heels of another study by the Center for Studies on New Religions that showed that nearly 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith in Jesus last year. 90,000 last year alone. And again, nearly as many as 600 million were prevented from practicing their faith through intimidation, forced conversions, bodily harm, and even death. These numbers underscore what we already know, said Robert Nicholson of the Philo Project, an advocacy group for Christianity in the Middle East. There are many places on earth where being a Christian is the most dangerous thing that you can be. It's alarming, isn't it? This morning and for probably the next 10 to 12 weeks, I want us to look at the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to see what Peter has to say about all this, because the people to whom he wrote were under fire for their faith. And he's talking to them about how nonetheless they are to live differently in this world. We are to have different hopes. We are to think differently. We are to desire differently. We are to serve differently. We are to be model citizens even when we don't always agree with our leaders. And so whatever side of politics you're on and whoever happens to be your leader at the time, he says here that we're to honor our leaders and respect them. Next week, we're going to do something a little different because it's the Sunday before Valentine's Day. We're going to jump over to chapter 3 and talk about husbands and wives. And then two weeks from now, we're going to come back and follow up this passage today. But I want you to see that 1 Peter speaks to where we are today. One commentator calls the book of 1 Peter the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires. Martin Luther considered 1 Peter on par with the books of Romans and the Gospel of John. He believed that it contains all that is necessary for the Christian to know. I found this to be an interesting fact about First Peter. In areas of the world where Christians are going through heavy persecution, it is said that First Peter is the most popular book in the Bible that they turn to for hope and for guidance. A specific example given of that is the Christian population in Indonesia today who live and work under heavy Muslim influence. Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter cites other examples of both past and present times where persecuted Christians have turned to the book of 1 Peter. She writes, Peter... to those whom he addresses as foreigners and resident aliens within the society in which they lived. He holds up Jesus Christ as the true outsider coming into this world but being rejected by it and executed by it. She quotes another writer saying, The root of Christian self-understanding as aliens and sojourners lies not so much in the story of Abraham and Sarah and the nation of Israel as it does in the destiny of Jesus Christ, his mission and his rejection which ultimately brought him to the cross. You know, this past week we have been inundated in the news concerning immigration. We've heard statements made and we've seen all these protests going on and all this rioting. And I'm not going to enter into the fray of that this morning. That's not my purpose. I will say that while I believe that we are to welcome the immigrant based on what we're taught in the Bible in the Old Testament because the children of Israel had at one time been the immigrants and strangers in the land. So we're to be kind to the stranger. The Bible's very clear on that. But at the same time, I see no conflict. With strengthening our policies to make sure that while we welcome the immigrant We're also trying to ensure safety for our own people In fact, you see Israel doing that very thing in one incidence in the Old Testament in the book of Judges But it seems like this week the battle lines have been drawn either or It doesn't seem to me like it's an either or situation I don't see why it can't be a both and situation We welcome the stranger, but also we have good policies for knowing who we're welcoming. But anyway, without getting into all that more, nonetheless, the timing of all this struck me since 1 Peter is about you and me living as strangers and immigrants and aliens in a foreign land. This land is not our home. We're strangers here. We're aliens. We're pilgrims. And since it's a dark world out there, I thought about that old song by Frank Sinatra, Strangers in the Night. Remember that song, Strangers in the Night, Exchanging Glances? Of course, I'm not going to go on and quote all the lines about that song, different subject matter. Uh, but... <laughs> But thinking about that song, Strangers in the Night, and First Peter, and who's he's, who he's addressing, and they live in the darkness of the world, and they're to be strangers, I thought about that song title. But the irony of all that this week, when I'm starting this series on you and I being aliens and strangers. I thought you know it's awfully nice of the country and awfully nice of the news media to get my sermon series the publicity they've given it this week. Let me make a suggestion to you as as you listen to the news this week, whichever side of the immigration policy you fall on, every time you hear about immigration in the news, I want you as the church to think, you know what, I'm an immigrant, I'm a stranger, I'm an alien in this world. Think about that. Ask yourself if maybe we're getting a little too much home here in this world when in reality we ought to just be passing through. You know, we need to be like Abraham. You know what the book of Hebrews says about Abraham? That he was looking, he was just passing through. He, and he was looking for a better place, a better city whose builder and maker is God. That's how we need to be. Continuing to quote Karen Jobes, bear with me this morning, Co's first message in a series, I feel like I need to do a little bit of background. She says, therefore, Peter exhorts Christians to engage the world as foreigners and resident aliens, having a healthy respect for the society and culture in which they live, while at the same time maintaining an appropriate separation from it. It is as Foreigners and resident aliens that, that Peter's readers are to abstain from carnal desires that even though perhaps socially acceptable war against the soul. She continues first Peter raises a second related issue by presenting the challenge, the challenging principle that it is better to suffer than to sin. Christians ought to understand themselves as a people who are done with sin, which means that one must be prepared to suffer the consequences of not sinning. The thought that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life and within God's will may be a startling thought, especially for those who became Christians with the idea that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 1 Peter challenges Christians to re-examine our acceptance of society's norm and to be willing to suffer the alienation of being a visiting foreigner in our own culture wherever its values conflict with those of Christ. I want us to see how all that plays out beginning in 1 Peter this morning. And folks, what we're going to see is the fact that We have been chosen by God is to make all the difference in the world about how we live in society and it is to make all the difference in the world about our hope for the future. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is remembering, let's just simply remember the author of the letter, okay? Remembering the author of the letter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We know him well from the pages of the New Testament, don't we? Simon Peter you remember what happened to him when he first became a follower of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 the Bible says now after John was arrested that is John the Baptist Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel passing along the sea of Galilee he saw Simon and Andrew his brother uh, casting a, a, a net into the sea for they were fishermen and Jesus said to them Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they forsook their nets, or they left their nets, and they followed him. Isn't that great? Simon Peter was willing to turn his back on his own life to become a follower of Christ. Here he was, this rugged Galilean fisherman, and he drops everything to follow Jesus. Remember, his name was Simon, but Jesus gave him a new name. In John 1, Jesus said, you will be called Cephas or Peter. Cephas is Aramaic for rock, and and Peter is Greek for rock, Petros. Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16 that he was giving him the keys to the kingdom. To lock and unlock. Puzzling passage. But I think we see the meaning of that passage in the book of Acts. Because on the day of Pentecost, with Peter preaching the sermon on the day of Pentecost, what did Peter do for the Jew? Peter unlocked the kingdom. He preached to them about Jesus, and thousands of them came to faith in Jesus. And then later on in that same book, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, he also unlocked the kingdom, the good news for the Gentiles. In Acts 10, you see the Gentile Pentecost. When Cornelius has invited Peter to come there and, and share with all the guests that he's, he's got there. And, and what happens is a duplication with the Gentiles of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It was Peter who made that proud declaration also. Lord, although everybody else falls away and denies you, I never will. And Jesus said, Peter, I want to tell you something. Before the cock grows, you're going to deny me three times. And related to that, Jesus had also said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. And he's been granted permission. But when you're restored strengthen the brethren. We know all these things happen like that. On the night Jesus was arrested, Peter, Peter denied the Lord three times and he went out and wept. But he was restored. Yes, he denied Christ. He denied Christ three times but, and he was sifted. But he was broken. He was repented. And Christ forgave him and restored him. Peter along with the others who made up the twelve became apostles, the sent ones. To go into the world as ambassadors for Christ after Christ ascended back to the Father. The church today is built upon their witness and their writings that make up most of the books in our New Testament. I don't know about you but I love the way the angel said to the women at the empty tomb, go tell his disciples and Peter in other words Peter you're forgiven I'm not done with you and then remember what happened between those days of the resurrection and the ascension Jesus said to Peter three times do you love me and Peter said yes and Jesus said then feed my sheep now, folks, isn't that great? Because that's exactly what Peter is doing in First and 2 Peter as well. He's writing a letter to feed the sheep and to encourage them. And so my point is we have a disciple. We have an apostle. We have a leader of the disciples. He was in that inner circle of three. So a disciple, a leader, an apostle... One who is tested and failed but was forgiven and restored. He was told to feed the sheep. This is the Peter who writes this letter. He's writing a letter of hope to persecuted believers. Folks, Peter is not writing out of some kind of ivory tower where he's never experienced hardship. He's been where the recipients of this letter are. And so he's well equipped to write them a letter of hope. And we're going to see this morning what their hope is ultimately based upon. Their hope and our hope today is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changes everything. Changed everything for Peter. Changes everything for us. Folks, they're having a tough time in the world. Life was hard. Life seemed to be against them because of their faith in Christ. But he wants them to know this is not the end of the story. And that's what they needed to understand. I want you to see something wonderful in verse 1. They may be rejected by the world and they may be despised by the world, but guess what? They are elect in God's eyes. They are the chosen. Don't miss that in verse 1. Elect exiles. If you're reading from the NIV, it says chosen. They were chosen by God. They were rejected by the world and despised by the world, but they were chosen by God. Folks, if we're chosen by God, we can get along a little bit with being despised by the world, can't we? Would you rather be loved and chosen by the world or loved and chosen by the Father? That reminds me of Paul in Romans 8 when he said, If God be for us, who can be against us? In the Father's foreknowledge, he chose them. He elected them. I want to say to you that election is a very real doctrine in the Bible meant to bring a great deal of comfort and assurance to God's children. If the thought of election confuses you and scares you and you don't like that word, then I would say to you, you're going to have to get out a pair of scissors and you're going to have to cut a lot of verses out of your New Testament and you don't want to do that. It's a very real doctrine in the Bible. I think about that occurrence in Acts 13. It says the next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds they were filled with jealousy. And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold we're turning to the Gentiles now. For so the Lord has commanded us saying I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth and when the Gentiles heard this they became rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed it's not that they believed and so then they were appointed to eternal life. It's exact opposite to that. They were appointed, and because they had been appointed, they believed. And what I'm wanting you to see, if you're a believer, it's because you've been chosen by the Father. Whatever you go through in this life, whatever trials and tribulations you suffer in this life, You've been chosen by the Father. And, folks, I don't know about you, but that ought to make all the difference in the world. Amen. Now, it's believed he was writing primarily to Gentiles. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he speaks of their former ignorance. In verse 18, he speaks of the feudal ways that they inherited from their forefathers. And in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. And then in chapter 4, he talks about that the time is up for them to do all the sins that the Gentiles do. And so many commentators, I think rightly so, don't see how that Peter could be writing primarily to Jews. They believe he's writing primarily to Gentiles. But I want you to notice the wonderful thing there. If that's the case, God has now through Christ made them a part of his people. God has made them a part of the new Israel of God through faith in Christ his Son. In fact, in chapter 2, he applies to them the words that were given to Israel in the Old Testament. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Wow. I want you to think what what he's saying there. Here were people whom the world despised because of their faith in Jesus But they were accepted by God. Notice it doesn't stop there. You go back to the introduction here in chapter 1 and you see that every member of the Trinity was involved in their salvation. He writes through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. And so we see a Trinitarian formula formula there. They are the recipients of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are forgiven. They are sprinkled. They are saved by the obedience of faith, and they are saved for obedience. And so again, folks, don't miss what is being said here. Don't miss. These opening words are rich. They're saved. They're forgiven. They're kept. They might be scattered now. Scattered now and maybe lost some of their inheritance in their native land. But they're kept by God for a future inheritance. Isn't that great? And so beginning in verse 3, he begins with a doxology of praise to God. Instead of fear, instead of despair, he wants them to live their lives in praise. The Christian's life ought to be a song of praise, a doxology of praise to God because... Through the Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit He's chosen us, He's saved us, He's elected us, He's forgiven us and He's written our names in the Lamb's book of life and given us a future. And that ought to make a difference in your attitude and my attitude. Secondly, Remembering the author of life, not the author of the letter, the author of life. God's people are to live in praise of God regardless of their circumstances on this earth. We're to live in praise of God regardless of our circumstances on this earth. So if you change the slide to the next one, number two. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, folks, we have a hope that transcends our circumstances. Circumstances, your earthly circumstances do not have the last say so in your life if you are a child of the king of kings and lord of lords look at what God has done He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who's done this? Have you done this? Have you earned it? Have you merited it? No, God has done it. God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Folks, the good news of the gospel is that while we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. And because of the new birth that God has accomplished, we have a living hope. We have a living hope. Somebody says, how can I know Peter's words are true here? Folks, if we had nothing to go on, we ought to believe it because we serve a God who cannot lie. But we have more than the naked word of God. We have what he did at the tomb. What did he do at the tomb that backs up what Peter is saying here? We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are giving a living hope of better things to come. When you are born again, you are born again to a living hope. When you are born again, you got a lot of things. You got reconciliation. You got justification. You got adoption. You became God's child, whereby you could cry out, Abba Father. You got the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses you from all of your sin. You get all of that, but you get more than that. You get a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of the new birth, you're not confined to the promises of this world. This world can give you and me nothing of lasting value. Those who are not born again are confined to this world. That can ultimately give them nothing. Nothing. They're in prison. They don't even see it. They're dictated by this world. They love this world and yet the world that they love cannot help them. The world that they love cannot deliver them. But that's why they're so obsessed with the world and their world circumstances being the very best that they can be. And you know what? I don't blame them a bit on that because if this world is all I had, then I'd want everything about this world to be perfect too, wouldn't you? But Peter is saying that the Christian is not trapped by the circumstances of this world. We have a better hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, this is not our best life yet. It amazes me how years ago a book by that title captivated so many You can have your best life now. I want to echo Dr. John MacArthur for a moment here. If this is your best life now, you must be saying you're lost. Think about it. If this is your best life now, do you realize what that says? That says you must not be looking for heaven. You must have no future heavenly hope. You must be lost. Peter says this is not your best life now. Your best life now is yet to come. What would persecuted Christians around the world think of Americans running to bookstores to buy a book entitled, Your Best Life Now? I bet they feel sorry for us. This is not our best life now. Not if you're a believer. Thirdly, And I've got to just summarize here, but remembering the author of life, God's people are to long in patient hope for our heavenly inheritance to come. Inheritance, that's the key word in this passage. The concept is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Each tribe among the children of Israel was granted an inheritance of the promised land. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, when it talks about the inheritances that they got under Joshua, the very same word is used as is used here for inheritance. Inheritance. Peter wants them to understand that that they have an inheritance far better than any kind of inheritance on this earth because remember Israel their inheritance in the land was jeopardized because the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians came in and carried the southern kingdom the southern tribes away to exile for 70 years so their inheritance in this land was in jeopardy constantly by enemies if God allowed enemies to get the upper hand but Peter is saying you and I as believers have a better inheritance it's an inheritance that nothing can affect it's in heaven we get a heavenly home the 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 identity of our future inheritance It's our heavenly home that Jesus spoke of in John 14 when he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And then look at the quality of our future inheritance. Peter says here in verse 4 it can never perish, it never dies. It's imperishable, incorruptible, it can never spoil, nothing can ever tarnish it. Every day we see the effects of sin on a fallen world. We see a world where bad things happen, sometimes to even who we would call good people. We see tsunamis, we see earthquakes, we see disease. Every morning we get up and some of you get up and you have creaky bones and joints and aches and pains, right? We live with all of that. But folks, not where you're headed if you're a child of God. You get an inheritance, he says, that can never spoil or fade or be diminished in any way whatsoever. The fourth stanza of amazing grace says, when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. The beauty, the majesty, the glory of heaven will never diminish. He says in verse 4, it's kept, it's reserved. In verse 5, he says, not only is it kept and preserved for you, but you're kept and preserved for it. Isn't that great? God protects your future inheritance and God protects you. And one of these days, God's going to bring the two together. Amen. So Peter says, whatever we're going through in this life, there needs to be this patient longing, a yearning for that. Your best life is yet to come. And even now, while you go through your trials and tribulations, you're not alone. God is with you. As Paul said at the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I wonder this morning if, like Peter, you need to come to Jesus. Is there anybody in here this morning that needs to forsake all and come to Christ? Whatever you leave behind is nothing compared to what you will gain. Do you understand that? Whatever you and I leave behind is nothing compared to what we'll gain. Do you need to come to Christ? I want you to remember this morning also that He has saved you for obedience. Your life is to be different. Your life is to be lived as a doxology of praise to God. Is that how you're living your life? Are you living as a stranger? Or are you living as an alien? Or is your life too much at home in this world? Are you going through testing now? He'll strengthen you. And one of these days, he will deliver you completely from whatever you're going through that troubles you. That's your hope. The Christian gets grace and peace and hope. That's a great way to start this letter, wouldn't you say? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Peter's words. We know these are inspired words by your Holy Spirit. Inspired words to a tested and troubled people. Who are living in a world that is against their faith. And Lord, I know that that is where some find themselves today. Strengthen them. Help them to keep their eyes on Jesus. Lord, if there's even one in this service here today who needs Christ. Because they're alone in the world and they're having to go through all this that the world gives them. But they're alone. They're like orphans. But if they'll come to Christ, they'll be an orphan no more. Draw them to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.